Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Welcome back to The Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Every two weeks, we craft a double feature of films connected through one element or another. The only caveat, those films must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We also highlight new additions to the collection, hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. My name is Ian, and this is my lovely friend and co-host, Mackenzie. Hello! Hey, Mackenzie. And this week, we are connecting back to last week's episode, where we discussed spine number 1154, Cassie Lemons's Eve's Bayou. And so later on in this episode, we will be talking about spine number 541, The Night of the Hunter, the one and only film directed by the man of stage and screen, Charles Lawton. But before we get to that, Mackenzie, how are you doing? I know we're both a little tired today, but (laughs) I got to hear about what you've been watching. I haven't been on Letterboxd that much this week. (sighs) Yeah, no, I've been like, you know, not watching a lot of stuff. I've been very tired and... I, I say it on ADP, which you'll hear. I just have been watching a lot of Worst Cooks in America because it's like the the shallow, silly thing my brain can absorb at the moment. Um, but I did watch a movie that I weirdly I thought was in the Criterion Collection, and it's not. But I will still Ooh. highlight it, even though it is not. <laughs> uh, the Lunchbox from 2013. Have you seen this movie? Oh, yeah. I saw you log that. Uh, and I also thought it was in the collection. <laughs> <laughs> I could have sworn it was in the Criterion Collection, so when I found out it wasn't, I was like, what the hell? Um, but as many know, because I talked a couple weeks ago about Babette's Feast, which I did rework my top four a bit to maybe have recent faves in there more so that I could have Babette's Feast in my top four, because I, I can't stop thinking about this movie. Um, but our, our dear friend Ron uh, from The Real Latinos messaged me and was like, I saw you loved Babette's Feast. You should watch The Lunchbox. It's another film about like food and love and how we love one another through food and um and i and i was just sort of like i just saw it on amazon prime and i was like let's do it i'm gonna watch the lunchbox and it was just such a lovely lovely film it was funny off mic we were just talking about um uh the kind of bad dad trilogy of wes anderson that we we both like uh and uh darjeeling limited which i love features iconic uh actor Ifran Khan and he is the lead in this movie and uh he's phenomenal in this in this in this movie he I I he nails this kind of curmudgeonly lonely man in a way that still makes him very likable which I think is very hard to do playing someone who is unlikable but you still identify with that character and he plays the growth that this man goes through as he begins to sort of open himself up to love and connection again with other people in a way that is really beautiful and the film is really just about these people who kind of uh this housewife who accidentally sends a lunch to an old widowed man uh, i say old he's like in his 40s but he feels old that's kind of part of the plot and they kind of accidentally spark up a correspondence with one another and kind of have feelings for one another and they've never met and it's just through food and through letters that they they build this relationship and this kind of fantasy world together uh, and there's other things too there's like a lot of other plots going on in their real lives that they have to deal with uh, and I just thought it was so beautifully written it had a really kind of indie handheld camera intimate quality to the filmmaking that I thought was really lovely uh, the food looked delicious uh, it was a really lovely movie. I will say my biggest downside was the ending. I was very mad about how they portrayed the ending, even if it was a hopeful one. Um, so that was my why I gave it four stars. I didn't it didn't skyrocket into all time faves as Babette's Feast did, but um, it was still a really lovely movie. I definitely recommend it, even if it's not in the Criterion Collection, like I thought it was. <laughs> um, 
I could see it primed to be in the collection one day. It's a very lovely movie. Um, and I believe uh, Friends Over the Cinemots, I think, covered this at one point as well. So You know what? You're that right. might be why and I thought I it was in the collection. Thought, <laughs> yeah. yeah, our good friends over at the Synodots who also talk about Criterion films as well as other things. Yeah, I, I saw I think it that might be there. why I thought, yeah. Yeah, it's 100% the reason why we solved it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I didn't really watch a lot of movies outside of that. Talk about Transformers over on ADP today. Uh, and really, honestly, just real quick, right before we, we, we I want to know what you're watching. Uh, I did watch this morning uh, Dead Men don't wear plaid which and you compare not... steve martin to barbara stanwick no he literally dresses up as barbara stanwick <laughs> in a scene um because the, it's again this is so not really criterion at all but he it's basically a clip show movie where um steve martin and carl reiner like insert him into old hollywood movies like or they use clips from other old hollywood movies to build a totally new story and it's like steve martin is acting alongside Cary grant and humphrey bogart and ingrid bergman uh and sometimes he dresses specifically so that he can fit into the other takes of the scenes if that makes sense so there's a part where he's like i have to dress as a dame to go undercover to meet this guy and it's the supermarket scene from double indemnity and he's meeting fred mcmurray and he's dressed as barbara stanwick so that they can use the shots of fred mcmurray where it's the back of barbara stanwick's head um mm. and it just made me it made me hoot and holler and i only mention mm. it because uh charles lawton whose film we're discussing today is in it as well uh in, through clips of a movie that he was in they they incorporate the great charles lawton um, so I just wanted to mention it because I thought it was fun that it connected kind of to what we're talking about today. No, that's great. <laughs> um, it's super goofy. I probably overrated it, but it made me laugh really hard. And yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, but Ian, what did you watch this week? I think I saw you log some fun stuff, but I haven't, I also haven't been to your lotter box in a couple of days. Yeah, no, I did. I logged a couple things. I watched another Douglas Sirk film, this one written on the wind, leaving the channel uh, a couple of days after our audience is hearing this. Um, it was really good. I watched it with Frankie and we had a really fun time watching it. Uh, we were mostly kind of poking fun at the more melodramatic aspects of <laughs> Cirque, uh, you know, because he's a very melodramatic filmmaker, but this really heightens it, especially um, with the husband character uh, yeah. played by Robert Stack. Uh, he's bonkers. Like the character is really wildly written and the performance is really over the top, but I really liked it. The production design was immaculate. It was giving me like old TCM channel vibes. Like I'm like, you know, eight years old at my grandma and grandma's house, grandma and grandpa's house and TCM is on and like <laughs> the fake, the fake beach out the window and the glistening lights and the technicolor. It was a really good vibe. I liked it a lot. Um, I watched a couple other things that we'll probably talk about someday on this podcast. I watched another Tarkovsky film, Solaris. I watched my first um, Max Olfus film, La Ronde, which is super good. I recommended it to you in our DMs. Mm -hmm. It's uh, very fun and funny. Um, but when I watched that, uh, made a huge impression on me is Robert Altman's Macabre and Mrs. Miller. Um, I loved this film. <laughs> if our listeners want to hear uh, or read what I thought about it more in depth, they can go and read my lengthy review on Letterboxd. Um, it is just like such an ultimate vibes film. It is such a great encapsulation of that pioneering American life during the 1800s. Um, it's, it's really, really fantastic. Great performances from Julie Christie, from Warren Beatty, who I haven't seen that much by. And I talk about this in my review, but Robert Altman's one of those filmmakers who's like real hit or miss for me. I've seen Nashville, I've seen The Long Goodbye, and while I think they're great, they don't really gel with me. Uh, in particular three women obviously i love we've talked about it here on this podcast mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. this is like just like three women immediate all-timer put it in my favorites um definitely gonna snag this next criterion sale at barnes and noble loved 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 it can't recommend it enough it's just such a perfect movie um <laughs> yeah i i really can't wait to talk about it. this is like one of those films where you and i are watching criterion films that we're not covering yet and it's like oh I'm so excited to watch this with you and talk about it. Um, had this with all that jazz recently and, you know, we'll definitely talk about that soon. Uh, winky, winky. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that's pretty much what I watched this week. Uh, like I said, I've been really tired. I've been falling asleep before it's been time to watch a movie uh, most nights. So 
pretty light week um, for us, but, you know, we still got to some things because, you know, as we've mentioned, I think last week and the week before, even when we don't watch that many movies in a week, it's probably still more than your average uh, <laughs> casual film watcher. But yes. speaking about things that are above the average casual film watcher, Mackenzie, the Criterion Channel announced a new lineup. And so oh. next month, we're going to be getting some amazing films. Well, it cannot be understated that uh, a few days after you're listening to this, everyone, it is Pride Month. Happy Pride. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we're not going to get into the bad stuff. It's going to maybe be a stressful Pride for a multitude of reasons uh, politically. But Criterion Channel is celebrating Pride as they do every year with a lot of amazing queer programming which i love because it never feels like that kind of corporate you know pride stuff it doesn't feel like mouth service feels like they put a lot of thought and love into the programming that they're doing and a big part of that is the new mask series they're doing 19 films about trans men butch lesbians and gender non-conforming heroes um i feel like it's kind of as a lesbian sometimes uh lesbians get left out of uh, a lot of pride celebration uh i notice like we, like the lesbian flag is always the one that sort of ends up getting left to the side uh and you know it's just and also especially i feel like people ignore butches and trans mask lesbians a lot when we talk about lesbians like people just sort of when you watch TV, everyone that's a lesbian is pretty femme. Uh, and so it's really kind of cool to me that they're going out of their way to really highlight stories from such a foundational group from the lesbian community and the queer community in general. Um, and there's a lot of amazing stuff in here. I'm so excited to watch By Hooker by Crook, which is a movie that I've been wanting to watch for a while. And of course, uh, Tomboy by Celine Scamma, who we love. I've been really wanting Have to watch that movie. Have you not seen Tomboy yet? No, I haven't. I'm very excited for you to check it out. It is one of my favorite films of all time. Celine oh. being one of my favorite filmmakers. This is a immaculate film. I'm so excited for it to be highlighted and more people to watch it. Yeah, and there's some great stuff in here as well. There's You were talking about Vera. seems really interesting. Uh, the Aggressives is a great documentary that I've watched that I really love. Uh, Stud Life is something I've been wanting to watch because there's an actress from <laughs> from The Haunting of Hill House in that. And I was like, I need to watch it. Um, but that's really, really awesome to see. I was also really excited to see the return of the Queer-Sided series that's been gone for a little bit, like, like half a year or so. Um, and I love the Queer-Sided series, the curation that they have. Uh, if you don't know what Queer-Sided is, it's an ongoing queer series on Criterion where they pick sort of a theme and then they fill in films that fit within that theme. So for uh, June, we are getting The Gay Best Friend, uh, which is an iconic kind of archetype of queer people on screen. Um, and there's some really cool movies in there. Rachel Rachel is one that I've heard about. That's in another collection we'll probably mention, uh, directed by Paul Newman, starring Joanne Woodward, that has a gay best friend who I believe is in love with Joanne Woodward in that film. Um, the Fisher King, which is a movie I've been really wanting to watch. Adam's Rib that has my queen, Catherine Hepburn, in it. So a lot of fun stuff in that. And the video they always pair with the Queer Sided. They always do like a 30 to 40 minute video of them discussing all the films. Always amazing. I really recommend watching the sort of conversations that they pair with these films because they're just really, really cool. Um, and then, yeah, I think that like the other thing that was like a series, I'm just excited to see the LGBTQ plus favorites. A really, really huge series of just, I think pretty much anything that's like an iconic queer film that they have right now, they just kind of plopped into this that has a ton of films that I absolutely recommend such as Desert Hearts, you know, one of my iconic faves. Uh, Paris is Burning, amazing, iconic film for a reason. The Incredibly True Adventure of Two Girls in Love, as well as a bunch I'm excited to watch, like Portrait of Jason, Jetuiel, Quirrell, a lot of movies I've been like wanting to get around to, and now I have an excuse to uh, for Pride Month. So, yeah, and those are, those are the, big, the big series. And I'm also really excited to see on the waterfront, uh, Marlon Brando's on the waterfront there. Oh gosh, there's too much. As well as I gotta highlight Safe. Todd Haynes' Safe is returning to the channel. It's one of their stealth editions at the bottom. Um, amazing, immaculate Jillian Moore performance doing her normal kind of like begrudging housewife thing before it was like the one thing she did all the time. <laughs> no yeah. offense. I love Jillian Moore so much. Yeah. This is like the OG of her playing this type of character, and it's really, really brilliant. Much like most of Todd Haynes' films in the 90s, it is a allegory to the AIDS crisis, uh, but in a deft and subtle and interesting way. 
I have a very lengthy review about it on Letterboxd. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I'm excited to see. I want to I want to hear what you're excited. There's other things I'm excited about, but I want to hear from you too, Ian. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, based on a previous recommendation outside of this conversation, safe for sure. Um, that's been on my watch list for a while now, so I'm super excited that they're adding it. Um, you know, you mentioned it uh, by virtue of mentioning on the waterfront, but they're putting out this method acting program, which yeah. is going to highlight films by, of course, Marlon Brando, but also Sidney Poitier, Gene Hackman and jack nicholson paul newman all these greats there's a couple of films in here that are just you know sound awesome have always wanted to see like reds alice doesn't live here anymore uh cool hand luke you and i were talking about before starting to record um it's just it's one of those catch-all programs where they can add a bunch of great films because the qualifier for being in the program is pretty loose just that one or more actors leading men or character actor is a you know student of the method uh which is something i know you're very familiar with having gone to school for theater um but uh super excited to check out that series but like the only woman who's mentioned on the program title card she's getting her own spotlight and that of course is the incomparable marilyn monroe and i was telling you this before we started to record today but like i used to be a little bit snobby about marilyn and be like, oh, she's just a sex symbol. There's no real talent there. But after I got really back into movies in 2020, I started diving into some of her, you know, really famous films. And I like love her. I think that she is such a talent. She did study under this very famous um, acting teacher who, you know, I think is like one of the originators. It's Ilya Kazan, right? Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Method. Um, or is it Stanislavski? Stanislavski, yeah, there's like multiple methods. Ilya Kazan is like the guy who did, who directed um, a lot of the greats. Like he did Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront, and a lot of those actors, like Paul Newman and Marlon Brando and Marilyn, I think, hung out with Kazan a lot. Um, and then, yeah, Stanislavski was teaching his own methods as well. I think method acting has gotten blown up into something else nowadays. But like, yeah, back in the day, there was like a very concrete <laughs> type of acting that was yeah. kind of tied to that. No, we're not talking now like you are definitely the expert in this conversation, but like we're not talking about Daniel Day Lewis like making, you know, going to Italy and making dresses to be in Phantom Thread. We're just talking about <laughs> somebody trying to understand a character beyond the script, beyond the page, really get into their psychology a little bit. They don't have to live as this person, but there is a more concerted effort to dig into it a little bit more and get into the real meat and potatoes of the character they're trying to portray on screen. Anyway. I'm very excited that Marilyn is included in this and that she's getting her own standalone program. I'm super excited to check out the seven year itch, which is one of hers I've never seen. I want to recommend everyone go check out Niagara, which is a color noir. She starred in playing the femme fatale. Um, it's not a perfect film may not even really be a great film, but it looks gorgeous. It's shot in Technicolor um, while being a noir and she's phenomenal in it. Like, her performance in it is worth the price of admission. I love that movie. Um, and then I am also excited to see her in um, How to Marry a Millionaire, which you and I were talking yeah. about before we started recording as well. Um, yeah, aside from that, I know the world is a really scary place now more than ever, but I am super excited to see the queer representation up on screen. You know, by the very virtue of the two people who host this podcast, I'm non-binary you're gay i'm bisexual <laughs> as well so like this is a queer podcast um we're vibing yeah we're a queer yeah. podcast absolutely yeah and i just want to echo what you said like whenever criterion does put up like queer programs and queer films it never feels like um empty you know change it Pandering really feels like yeah yeah it never feels like the you know corporate speak that we get when we walk into a target supermarket where it's like you know love is love on a rainbow tote bag you know, doesn't feel cheap um they have queer programmers they have queer curators um and queer historians who offer their voices to like exactly what you're talking about this you know 30 to 40 minute uh discussion usually before a queer sighted program so um with that i really want to recommend everybody check out something that's been mentioned celine skiama's tomboy it's a beautiful story about a young gender non-conforming uh 
child, like kind of discovering themselves and going through that process. I love this movie. I am somebody who went through that as a child and I didn't even have the vocabulary to express it. So this movie means a lot to me. And if you're ever somebody who has struggled with your gender identity, it's a beautiful film and it's definitely for you. Um, please go check it out. And even if you're not, uh, it's a lovely story. Celine Sciamma is such a thoughtful and tender filmmaker and just, in my opinion, one of the best. Um, so yeah, that is what I'm excited for, Mackenzie. Uh, anything else you want to comment on or talk about? I do want to say they're adding a bunch of films from Greg Araki as well. Um, who yes. is a very queer filmmaker. I've watched his film Smiley Face, which is like his stoner comedy starring Anna Faris, uh, as well as The Living End, which is sort of a anarchist post-AIDS, you know, post-AIDS, post-80s um, kind of film about the AIDS crisis, as well as Nowhere, which is a part of his kind of teenage doom trilogy, uh, two of which are coming to the channel with Totally Fucked Up and The Doom Generation, as well as his uh, hit film uh, starring... Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I believe. Um, is that the right actor? Yes. Yes, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Mysterious Skin. Um, and so I just want to highlight Greg Araki because he's really great. Nowhere is very fun. It's like a Kafka-y, weird, sexual fantasia. Uh, and this is just films about the Teenage Doom trilogy, as it's often referred to, about just like queer teens thinking about the end of the world. And I have this prediction because they just did a 4K restoration of the Doom generation that is the specific version that's coming to the channel i do have a prediction that there might be a greg rocky box set in criterion's future i that's my main prediction i feel it in my bones whenever i see a restoration going around new york city i'm like hmm <laughs> um, you took the words right out of my mouth uh, <laughs> yeah. janice clearly has the streaming rights to this and i wouldn't be surprised if they have the physical rights to this i think we are due for a quote-unquote three films by greg Iraqi box set yes. in the very near future. I and I want to say, if that happens, then I will be like two for two with me emailing suggestions <laughs> at Criterion, uh, and because yes. I did, uh, I'm looking up right now, t March 2022. I emailed them and after I watched Nowhere and I recommended a box set of Greg Araki films because they're very hard to find. Like the fact that the Doom Generation is getting. A restoration is so exciting because his films are very, very, very hard to get a hold of, like legally and in a good quality. Um, and so I think that would just be amazing if he got a box set, just because he's a really influential, yeah. fun queer filmmaker. And it's it's it sucks that it's really hard to watch his work. Yeah, I meant to mention them when I was talking about what I was excited about, but you you told me that I got to check out the Dupe Generation. We were talking a little while back. Super excited for these. Um, yeah, I just. I just am really excited for this month. I know a lot of people thought last month was kind of slow and I, you know, kind of agree, but like, this is going to be a great month. That's the thing is like, while some months may not have anything you're interested in, the next month might have too much that you're interested in. Um, so you might just, you know, you might be overloaded, but I'm excited for these. Um, yeah, no, um, I need you to email Criterion about Roamers for seasons. <laughs> I just sent my first email to them. I was like, I think they have I think they have this in mind and I think they're gonna do it, but I called that shot and I emailed them recently and said you need to add Eric Romer's four seasons to the collection. I have no idea who reads those emails or if anyone reads them, but I have I did send double indemnity and it got added to the collection like seven months later, so I felt very cool. <laughs> well, Mackenzie, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we get on to our feature film event? No, I think I'm ready to to get into Charles Lawton's first and only film. First and only. All right. Well, ease us in to the dark nori landscape of Night of the Hunter then. Once upon a time there was a The Night of the Hunter. Incredibly, the only film the great actor Charles Lawton ever directed is truly a standalone masterwork. A horror movie with qualities of a grim fairy tale, 
It stars a sublimely sinister Robert Mitchum as a traveling preacher named Harry Powell, he of the tattooed knuckles, whose nefarious motives for marrying a fragile widow played by Shelley Winters are uncovered by her terrified young children. Graced by images of eerie beauty and a sneaky sense of humor, this ethereal, expressionistic American classic, also featuring the contributions of actress Lillian Gish and writer James Agee, is cinema's most eccentric rendering of the battle between good and evil. The Night of the Hunter. So well filmed and everything. Before we get into like some of the good things, I got a bone to pick with this movie. Um, We're doing right into it. Okay. <laughs> I just got to say, um, before we get into anything, I want to talk about how this connects to East Bayou because I think it does in really interesting ways. I want to talk about a lot of different things. But Shelley Winters has been done dirty by two different male auteurs of this era. First in this, I think. Yeah, it would have been first in this. And then later on, she's in Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. Oh, jeez. Which is a whole egg. Can of worms, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Which is a whole can of worms I really don't want to get into, but she plays a character which meets a very similar fate to her character in this film, and oh, she's wow. such a great actress, and it makes she's me amazing. sad that like she is served these like crappy roles. Um, not to say like the role in this is like doesn't serve a purpose and isn't interesting and complex, but I just I I wanted more for Shelley Winters because she's really great. Um, so that's my that's my big bone to pick. Um, but yeah, like, what did you think of this, Mackenzie? Give me your initial <laughs> thoughts. I know we can't really have that much of a history with Charles Lawton as a filmmaker, no. but have you ever seen him in anything? Were you familiar with the story of this film beforehand? I don't think so. I yeah no I have not actually not seen Charles Lawton in a lot but I know he's like an Academy Award winner and was an iconic actor of his time and so I want to see Charles Lawton in more things other than <laughs> Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid that I watched this afternoon <laughs> um, but yeah I really I've only really seen the cover of Night of the Hunter a ton because it's one of those movies where like whenever you're watching a Criterion Closet video they they grab it I feel like it's I, I've seen it a lot in the Criterion Closet videos it's number 169 on the top 250 of Letter boxed so like it's one of those films i know people love i went into this knowing that it was like a big deal um and i see why i think it's a really stunning looking film it's kind of i mean i know it's the thing everyone says kind of bonkers that charles lawton never got another chance to make another film uh, i think he would die about seven years after this film came out um but you know the way he's pulling from kind of german expressionism in terms of the visual style the visual mm. kind of language he's trying to use uh it's really stunning and i really really loved a lot of this movie and we'll maybe we'll get into it a bit with because i do think that for me the like end of the second beginning of the third act has a lot of pacing issues like there's kind of the first chunk of it i like was really vibing with it and then it kind of the wheels fall off a little bit for me after Shelley Winters dies and I'm wondering if that death could have maybe come a little bit later we could have built that character a bit more and then lost her maybe that would have helped I just felt like the kind of children running away sequence was very long uh in terms of the pacing for the film and so the the pacing slumped and then the end felt very very rushed I felt the end was a very very rushed ending in a way that I was a little disappointed by but overall I was really impressed by it and the first half of it I was like, I see why people love this. It's really, really amazing. The themes it wears right on its on its shoulder in a way that is really kind of amazing. And we talked about it a bit. Another film that inadvertently connects to Do the Right Thing with, I did not realize that Radio Raheem's speech is from this film, The Love and Hate. Um, and so much like, you know, Do the Right Thing, that seems to be the main theme that the film is working within. And uh, I do think a lot of the film is made more compelling because of Robert Mitchum's terrifying performance. I thought was, I thought, I thought he gave a really, really great performance as, as the preacher, preacher Powell. Um, so yeah, I think overall I really dug it. I don't know. I I think the pacing near the, the third act kind of got a little bit away from me personally. Um, but I definitely see why people love it a lot. What were your kind of initial, other than justice for Shelley Winters, what was kind of a lot of your uh, initial feelings when you left the, f the film? Um, well, I thought it kind of had pacing issues in the front half. I thought the pacing oh. was way better in the back half, actually. <laughs> that's so, so I really funny. struggled with it up front. Yeah, that's 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 fun. Um, 
yeah, I, I was really struggling with it up front. Um, the first thing that really grabbed me was the thing that you've now mentioned, that love and hate speech with the tattoos on the fists, the L-O-V-E and H-A-T-E, um, which is exactly a carbon copy that Spike Lee took and then put into Do the Right Thing, which is really interesting because this film is definitely dealing with themes of love and hate and the battle between them within oneself and also in society. Um, specifically here, I think we're talking about the deep South. Um, I think it's very much a story tailor made for like the culture of Southern patriarchy, oh, and yeah. Southern family values. Um, whereas do the right thing is a film about uh, police brutality, racial injustice and race relations across America. I don't think that's a story even though while it's very specific in its setting, I don't think that's a story that's uh, particularly about New York. Uh, but anyway, we're not talking about that. Sorry. Um, no, I love it. Yeah, I mean, but relate. Things re- <laughs> yeah. Uh, things really, though, picked up for me once uh, Shelley Winters dies, that image of her underneath. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. I'm not saying I wanted that to happen. I know it's weird. I'm like, justice for Shelley, but things started moving in this movie once she passes. No, um, that's wild just that we had visual- the exact same point in which the pacing yeah. changed for us, but it was in the different directions. That is so funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's like where the visual imagery also really started to get with me. Uh, there were a couple moments that I thought were really uh, awe-inspiring in terms of visuals. There's that sequence where she is in the car underneath the lake. There's mm-hmm. a sequence in the bedroom right before he kills her and it's very stagey yeah Uh, the set design there is in really interesting i thought it was really weird for lack of a better word but really captivating and then the sequence while the kids are actually running away i thought the design of them floating down the river was really really cool again for lack of a better more sat like word i thought it was cool i was like really interested in looking at the night sky and then floating on this river and the cinematography of them falling asleep and uh, the little girl singing in the boat. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I enjoyed the second half of this more. <laughs> um, the first half. Yeah. I was just really struggling with some of like the, the setup. I felt like the dad committing the crime was a little rushed, whereas opposed to how you thought the ending of this was rushed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all in all, I just knew about this because of, you know, like I said, I think on our last episode, I see posts for this on the Criterion subreddit all the time. Just people talking about the visuals again, how it's crazy Lawton never made another feature. Um, I mean, I get why he didn't. This was really poorly received at the time. Yeah, um, I was reading that. So like, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, but I think it is a very dark film. Yes. It's dealing with very interesting and heavy subject matter especially for a film that came out in the 50s but i do also think that it's interesting that this has been one that's been reclaimed i don't know if you had any takes on that like why do you think this has been such a reclamation project for cinephiles yeah i mean you know it is i think maybe i do think that people myself included are always really struck when they watch an older film and you know you come into older cinema with a lot of preconceived notions about how it's going to feel and how they're going to tell stories and i do think that when you get to be surprised by the modernity of an older film in terms of the way the story is told i think that's what strikes newer film goers and i do think that this film i was thinking about it i mean it's it's basically came out smack dab in the middle of the Hayes code and i do think it talks about some really dark stuff like i was really genuinely shocked at how open the uh, kind of incel murdery misogyny of the preacher was so open in the beginning, that sequence of him discussing why he feels the compulsion to kill women and because of their, you know, the way they, they show their bodies to one another while he's watching a, you know, a burlesque dancer. Like I was just like immediately struck in the beginning by how um, I was like, how did this come out during the Ace Code? It was kind of wild. And yeah, I, I think that there's just such a darkness to it. And I, I agree with Criterion's sort of, uh, the, the the way they said it kind of feels like a grim fairy tale. Like, yeah, there's this fairy tale aspect. And, and everyone knows those grim fairy tales are way darker, right, than Disney ever let them be. And so when you really go back mm. and read them, there is such a darkness to them in a way that I think maybe that resonates with people. Again, it's a really striking film. Like, 
visually it fits into a lot of beautiful places i think people love uh, i agree the the bed uh, the bedroom was kind of stagey there was another sequence i think it was the the basement also kind of had that stagey feeling where it was like kind of 2d the house was kind of 2d while he was coming down the stairs i thought was really cool the shot that struck me first was the when the kid is going up to the the window the reflection of the window against the wall and then his head with the hat like appears mm. like that was so horrifying and i was like oh and it made me yeah. jump and it was really cool and like yeah, yeah obviously the, the the mother underneath the water in the car with her hair blowing along with the seaweed like there's a lot of beautiful imagery in this um that honestly feels like a huge swing from a director in 1955 and not that great films and amazingly directed films weren't coming out 1955 and before but you know they were fewer and far between people were much like today, kind of afraid to take risks. And this feels like a risky movie, which is why I think people maybe have reclaimed it on behalf of Charles Lawton, because it is a better movie, I think, than maybe people in 1955 gave it gave it credit for. Even if I do, you know, I think we both agree there's pacing issues maybe in different parts of the film. Um, but I still think overall it's an interesting swing for a movie in a way that maybe that kind of plays into it. it it's 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 really interesting. Like I was, I really wonder if, yeah I I should have done research I'm curious when it kind of got reclaimed like I wonder if like do the right thing brought it back to the public zeitgeist with that speech like I wonder if that was something that helped it or I'm I'm curious when it began coming back or maybe it was Criterion putting it in the collection like I yeah I'm very curious what made people revisit this movie in trove because it seems very popular amongst cinephiles yeah well I did do a little bit of research (gasps) thank you well, yeah, well, nothing that you can't read for yourself on Wikipedia, but, you know, I that's, like, something I was really interested in, and so a lot of it does actually have to do with filmmakers, uh, Spike Lee being one of the central ones. Um, Spike Lee just carbon copies the speech about love and hate given by Robert Mitchum's character in the film and puts it in Do the Right Thing in a very different context, but um, still one that's, you know, very striking. Um you also have people like the Coen brothers who reference this mm. in their films. I know it's referenced in the big Lebowski. Um, the line, the dude abides um, is a echo of Rachel's closing line. They abide and they endure. Really? In the really? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a uh, cited from them. Uh, they also reference it in the visual style of true grit. Mm, um, I can see that. So that's a little bit later, but you'll also, it's also interesting because AFI put this on their list of, a hundred years, a hundred thrills, a hundred years, oh, wow. hundred heroes and villains, um, and then the I think the cherry on top was that Roger Ebert read a review um, at one point in either the seventies or the eighties as a retrospective, saying that you know this is one of the most compelling and frightening and beautiful films ever made, um, that it survived the fifties more that it survived the fifties better than a lot of other uh, films made of that time, Mm. especially in that genre. Um, Yeah. And I think, I think there is something about its stage like quality. Lawton was a director of the stage. Mm -hmm. Um, He directed a lot of stage plays uh, before making this film that makes it somewhat timeless. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think the imagery is very striking. Uh, My, personal feelings on the enjoyment of the film might differ than that but i think there is uh, something really different about the night of the hunter when compared to its contemporaries especially mm-hmm. in the horror genre in the noir genre this is a exceedingly dark film dealing with exceedingly upsetting themes and upsetting issues like you know serial killers uh child abuse um the loss of innocence because you're you know the sins of the father uh you know and also the really interesting dynamic between shelly winters's character and Sidney gish's character um i thought is this is probably the thing that stuck out the most to me is um let me make sure i get things right is um when willa who is shelly winters's character uh, the mother of the two children in the film when she's lost her husband and Harry Powell walk, waltzes into town uh, with his charisma and wins over everybody's you know opinion or uh, wins everybody's favor more like that uh, so uh, Willa's employer Icy is like 
you should marry this guy. A single mother and no can do is a bad look and you're going to fail. And I thought was really interesting about that. It's just the themes of the time of the period that do date this film somewhat, but I still, I think are somewhat relevant today is that uh, patriarchal Southern society is no bueno. It is no means to any good end for anybody because basically the, uh, the look that people are going to be giving Willa is that she is no uh, up to no good or she's not going to be successful or her children are going to turn out poorly because her thief husband, her murdering thief husband has been you know sent to the gallows and now she's a single mother and that's no good for her and that's no good for the kids. So she's essentially pressured into a marriage that it, initially she doesn't seem to want. And then that marriage turns into a situation where she's emotionally abused uh, she is uh, shamed for wanting natural sexual desires from her now husband and is then gaslit into believing that he, this new husband, Harry Powell, has married her only to save her soul because she is somehow corrupted because she turned her husband evil and turned him into a murdering thief and also because she wanted to have sex with him on their wedding night. That also contributes to her being, you know, corrupted or you know possessed it's i think the most interesting aspect of the film and is one of the reasons i was really upset to see the shelly winters character go so early on is because i thought there was so much more to mine there um and i was really interested in just the psychological undoing of willa and what that portrays to me is the underpinnings of how corruptive and corrosive patriarchy and also just Southern family values were and can still be. Yeah, I was really struck. I agree that, like, I wish that there was more time given to Willa and her character because I do think that, like, again, I mentioned it, but I I think Robert Mitchum's performance in this is really interesting and really genuinely scary the way he, you know, we both grew up in the South, grew up in Tennessee. I was surrounded by these evangelical freaks, and they he nails that, you know what I mean? Like I, I never. This is so. This is so random. We watched a documentary on HBO, the way, the way, way down about you know an evangelical kind of weight loss cult, basically in in Tennessee, and it's you watch those things, and I feel like sometimes if you're not a part of that, your inclination is to be like, how could these people ever believe this crap? How could these people ever follow these people who are clearly crazy? But like, there is a level of charisma and care these people bring that is that preys upon people who need that, who need people to care about them. And that's exactly, I feel like what very severe evangelical preachers and people do is they find the perfect kind of mark and they, they use their charisma to show this person care and love and, and it pulls them into their vortex. And as we kind of talked about last week, there's nuance to those kinds of relationships and they're very hard to get out of They're It's an abusive relationship. And, and I think that Robert Mitchum nails the evangelical preacher archetype. Like he was so scary the way he uses his smiles and his tones and the calm nature that he brings to try to like bring that sort of, I don't know, like he has such a scariness in his, the way he tries to kind of calmly ask for what he wants. And it's just, and then he blows up when he blows up, it's even scarier. Like, I think he nails that. And I do think that Shelley Winters does a great job as this woman who's hitting rock bottom, doesn't know where she is in life. And she's the perfect mark for a guy like him. And I do wish that there was, yeah, more, maybe a bit more unpacking of that because I found it interesting how, through his manipulation, he kind of convinces her to then participate in these tent revivals. And that's pre- that's over pretty soon. And I just feel like there was an interesting arc going on with Willa and Harry. And I wish that they had continued it because then it would have made her loss even more upsetting. It would have, I think, given the kids even more reason to run away from him. Like, I think that if they had dedicated a bit more time to Willa, it would have, I think, positively impacted the emotional weight of the story. Um, so I totally agree with you there. But I think those are both two really amazing performances. And I maybe kind of getting into the second half, my other favorite performance was from uh, Lillian Gish, who plays Rachel Cooper. She was like maybe my favorite in the movie. I love that she's kind of like a no-nonsense lady who sees through his shit instantly. She's like, get the fuck away from me and my children. Like, I love that she sees through his ploys and you see the like cracks begin to show in this man's visage 
visage visage because he isn't used to having someone immediately see through him like he is transparent and it's um she was a really exciting performance so i guess i've got i've also kind of gotten in a totally different direction but i mostly wanted to say i agree with you uh and the performances were so compelling it made me want more from that and was yeah disappointed when there was less uh it's a really bifurcated narrative it's uh you know split into very two distinct sections and i think that what you know i really appreciated about um the beginning even though i had some pacing issues was that shelly winter's performance i i mean i love everything you said about uh the uh uh lillian gish performance um I just thought that that sequence like got a little slower for me and um, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't really gel with it. I really loved that middle point though. I don't know if it's really a middle point, but I loved that point visually where they are floating down the river that I mentioned earlier. Well, it's um, funny you uh, mentioned the floating down the river. Cause I also think, and maybe we'll get into it more with connections. I think the like biblical allegories of this were interesting the way that like the floating down the river is supposed to sort of invoke moses a little bit and like yeah I, i'm not really 100 percent sure what that means because i i don't know how moses necessarily connects to the type of story that's here but uh it, I, I did find it interesting also there's a lot of which connects to eve's bayou a bit which maybe we'll get into later this I, the kind of spiritualism that kind of runs through the film uh is very interesting and i think that like the dichotomy of rachel's spiritualism with harry's is really interesting right like the way she uses religion to to do put good into the world to take in these children who don't have homes to try to make the world a bit of a better place and he uses the good book to justify his actions in the very beginning he tells god your your book has lots of killings so i'm doing the right thing even though i'm like dude thou shalt not kills like the number one thing but like whatever uh like you know what i mean like the way they use religion in different ways to sort of justify their own actions is is interesting uh so yeah, you, I don't know. You mentioning the 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 Moses thing again kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think those would be like the last big thing I say. But I do think going back to what you were saying about how this came out during the Hayes Code is really fascinating because like I don't know the Hayes Code in and out, but I definitely know that like moral upstanding was like a, a center stone mm-hmm. of the Hayes Code. Is like really only wanting to show moral good and moral bad has to come out on the bottom it cannot win out um you cannot have morally ambiguous endings uh, or you definitely cannot have uh morally bad endings but uh to take religion christianity which is a cornerstone of morality in the united states less today than it was then but still so today uh and to have it portrayed in a very murky and gray way Mm -hmm. um and almost accentuated by the way that this thing is filmed shot in black and white it's using the german expressionist shadows like we've talked about it's a beautifully shot thing and it really just contributes to like a really interesting display of morality at a time when morality had to be front and center in a positive way so i do think like that kind of ties into everything we've been talking about like why this thing's been reclaimed why it wasn't accepted at the time and what is fascinating about it well i mean I, I'm I'm really interested to talk about how this connects to Eve's Bayou. It sounds like you might be too. Did you have any final thoughts and a star rating on The Night of the Hunter before we move into that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like when I'm, I left the movie having a specific star rating in my mind, and I feel like it sounds like I'm a bit murkier on it than I am, but I want to say I really did like the movie a lot. I thought that it like looked stunning. I loved the performances and them. Even the kid performances I thought were really, really good, um, especially the young boy who he's kind of driving a lot of the action because he is the, the one who you know and we'll get i think this will really relate in connections right he's the one that's trying so desperately to be heard and seen for um to to get help you know he's a child uh and i think that he gives a really great performance i think the tension i didn't really mention this the tension in this film i think is built in the first half really effectively for me you know all the scenes where mitchum is holding the little girl and like we know who he is and there's like for me an innate tension for the audience and like him even just being near her you know what i mean knowing the kind of person he is i thought was he was using the character to build tension i also loved how charles lawton was using hymns to sort of create um an eerie tone through the film because i do think that like a lot of horror movies use that like children singing hymns as like a staple of like how to make something creepy have a child sing uh, and i feel like lawton uses that a lot here in a way that i think is really effective and fits the tone and the themes of the film with religion and 
and the darkness of that. Um, and yeah, I just, I really dug it. I thought it was really interesting. I thought a lot of the writing was really cool. I think the last shot I want to mention, I, that sort of relates to the visuals of it. Um, I mean, there's so many shots you could pull out as like highlight shots, but one of the things I loved was the practical lighting effects of this film as well. And there was my favorite, one of my favorite parts in the whole movie that I thought was so scary and so great was when Rachel is standing at the kind of screen door, screen window, watching uh, Powell outside while he sings to her to try to kind of, he's just trying to be a fucking creep. And one of the kids walks up with a candle and the lighting effect hits the the screen with a light that blocks your view of Mitchum, but not totally. So you see him like hide, like you see him see his like chance and run. So then when the kid leaves, then there's this, he's not there anymore. And I just thought that was so effective and scary and great. And like, there was just so much creativity from Charles Lawton with this movie in a way that really blew me away. So rambling but i did leave this movie feeling like i would give it four stars so i'm probably gonna stick to that i thought i i think it is a better than average film from this era from the ones i've seen uh, in the 50s i think it's a really striking and interesting movie even if i felt there was some pacing issues in the second half i i still left it feeling glad i watched it uh and yeah it was like it's kind of a big one to knock off my cinephile list and i'm really happy i did ian what are your final thoughts and star rating for night of the hunter I had really high expectations for this. Um, sometimes can be the curse of a film that's been built up in the you know communities that we inhabit at large, whether that be the Reddit I've been mentioning, the you know backslash uh, Criterion, uh, or just you know Discords that we inhabit, or being on Letterbox and seeing people logging this at five stars and it being on the top two hundred and fifty narrative films of all time. Mm-hmm. But you know. And I've said this before, I really don't like to talk about things that I don't like when we're having conversations. I've alluded to it. It wasn't my favorite. Had yeah. some pacing issues. I would have liked to see more Shelley Winters. That was the most interesting aspect for me of this film. I have a really hard time with kid actors um, more often than not. So focusing the story on the two kids in the second half was a little difficult for me to gel with. It's shot beautifully. I've mentioned the shots and the uh, production design in this film that I thought was uh, spectacular. And I'm higher than I thought I was. I was kind of feeling a two-star rating. Coming wow, I also was wondering. Yeah, but I, I'm three stars for this film. Um, it's a three-star movie for me. It's really good. It doesn't transcend anything for me. I didn't have any moments of absolute just awe during watching it and it's also just not the kind of story that i normally gel with i'm not a big fan of these like um kind of you know uh money hunting serial killing thrillers or you know like fargo is one that comes to mind immediately like having talked about the coens a little bit earlier it's not one of my favorites and everybody seems to love that movie it's i do love fargo for a bag of cash (laughs) um just not my kind of thing. So you, three stars and three stars is good. Yeah, as they totally. say on the real Latinos. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's time we get into connections. Ah, a little lad you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil. H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Kane struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch, and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one again to other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand, left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won. And old left hand hate is down for the count. I never heard it better told. I wish every soul in this so community... The, the first thing that I wrote down when it came to how I saw this connecting to Eve's Bayou, I actually used this phrase earlier in the episode, is sins of the father. Like, the mm-hmm. impetus for this story in Night of the Hunter is that Daddy steals a wad of cash and kills two guys and is given the death sentence, uh, you know, pushing the events into emotion. Now, Eve's Bayou, it's a much more prolonged and drawn out thing when it comes to the sins of the father and that, but it's definitely the cornerstone of like 
the drama and the tension in that story. I also noted how they both take place in the deep South Mm -hmm. um, and that they deal with themes such as family values, or at least the family values of the time and what was thought to be the right thing. And one of those right things being patriarchy and how that leads to nothing really good. Yes. Um, And then the final thing I wrote down and I'm just getting these all out of the way. We can, then I want to hear you out is a loss of innocence of children and then the coming of age in a harsh, cruel world. Yeah, I I also agree that the, the the setting alone, like, you know, when they're in the water, especially like it has that bayou vibe, like the settings were very similar in terms of the Deep South and specifically a more swampy area in the Deep South. Like visually, they were very similar settings. Uh, and I agree that like the, the idea of the the children being the kind of point of view of the film uh, feels unique and also connects the two films. Right. The this idea of children not being believed, just wanting to be heard, trying, losing their innocence due to um, the actions of the adults around them. I think that there, that, that was the biggest connection to me was just like thematically these, I, the, the children kind of propelling the story of secrets and lies and death kind of all swirling around the lives of these children together. Um, I thought it was really relevant to both films something that was also kind of subtle that reminded me of Eve's Bayou is the young woman who you know Rachel's taken in a bunch of children and there's one of like an older girl who's probably 14 or so maybe 14 15 who's going through puberty and is attracted to the preacher and he you know manipulates her to get the location of the kids so that he can find the money um, and she reminded me a lot of Sicily in Eve's Bayou as in terms of being a woman of that age, a young, a young woman of that age, young girl who is going through puberty and feeling attraction to men and, and sort of inadvertently expressing that attraction to older men, um, who manipulate the young girls. Like, like she, she doesn't give a ton of screen time, but her character reminded me of Cecilia a lot in Eve's Bayou, um, and so that was kind of a more like subtle connection, but that was definitely something I saw how they were sort of, and you know, much like used Bayou that connects to this loss of innocence, this growing up, this um, manipulation that can happen from the patriarchy and from older men who see a window to manipulate women. Um, and so I feel like that was another kind of connection I saw. I feel like those are probably the big ones, right? The setting kids and then this idea of, yeah, patriarchal, yeah patriarchy ruining the lives of of everyone pretty much that it comes in contact with i love that sicily comparison i didn't even clock that but that's a great great comparison and like draw thematically i yeah no i mean it's just like the manipulation of men who have been given this position of power especially in a you know mid-century southern society that like what the preacher says is always best you know another word for preacher is father um damn no, that's that's really fascinating Mackenzie I love that um, <laughs> I love when I say a connection and I can see you like having yeah. your mind blown it makes me feel really good <laughs> listeners I'm just like my eyes get super wide and I like to imagine <laughs> my head just goes wow <laughs> um, makes yeah, me feel no. good when I when I point out something you didn't notice yeah I love that and um yeah, the first thing I wrote down was Sins of the Father. I thought it was really interesting mm-hmm. that this story is propelled off by um, Willa's husband committing a crime and then making his kids, like, promise to, like, not reveal that. That's, like, such a burden to place on a, like, a young child. These kids are yeah. not even 10 or 11 yet. And I thought, you know, one thing I thought of in specific connection to East Bayou was this, It's it's a little different, but the um secrets that are like between the kids and their dad like the dad is like now you don't tell nobody about this all right eve um you know like when when eve discovers that her father is a cheating bastard um or when you know sicily and her father um have that moment that's you know we talked about previously uh is it's these it's these adults putting these children through heinous circumstances and then kind of like making it their, the onus on them to deal with it and keep the secret between them, et cetera. Yeah. I just, I actually was like, you know, we, we've talked about this. We make these connections a lot of the times without knowing if they're going to be a double feature. And I was, yeah. while I was not the biggest fan of the night of the hunter, I was pleasantly surprised at how like 
interestingly, these two connected thematically. Like there's a lot yeah. to chew on when it comes to, as we've mentioned a couple times, like patriarchy and all the bad it entails and also just like the loss of the innocence of these kids in like these really, you know, harsh worlds. And I do find the the one that we, you know, both came to on our own, the loss of innocence of the kids in these stories how the stories are told really mostly through the perspective of these young people, mm-hmm. but they're not sanitizing these stories at all. These are not like um, the Sandlot. These are not like um, yes. Stand By Me, which is a little bit more grown up, but they're not, they're not, they're not even like teenage geared uh, stories. They are like, they are like very unforgiving. Little children. Yeah. yeah. Like little children set in these very unforgiving worlds and narratives with like very like, true to life like uh devastation like (laughs) night of the hunter is no easy feat um which i think is really interesting that was made in the 50s but it's not a kind film and neither really is eve's bayou no and i honestly wouldn't be shocked especially knowing that like spike lee was clearly inspired at least in some way by this film maybe even if it was just the themes of good and evil which is i mean we didn't really super get into but obviously it's kind of just a latent theme through the whole film yeah. uh, is this kind of tension between good and evil and i read something really interesting that was saying how evil is portrayed as a, a man of god right who at this time was typically the symbol for good he's evil in this film and a poor child which is typically the kind of person that's never listened to in our society is the symbol of good in this film you know so clearly that inspired that 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 sort of idea of class and good and evil inspired spike lee and so i wouldn't be shocked if this movie inspired cassie lemons as well who was clearly also inspired by spike lee having worked with him and used a lot of the same actors as him uh i wouldn't be shocked if 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 someone asked cassie lemons if she had seen this movie if she doesn't say yeah that actually inspired a lot of eve's bayou i i wouldn't be surprised at all if that was the case yeah no i mean yeah i'm I'm almost half shocked that i don't see it in under the uh retrospective section on the wikipedia page because yeah i'm just mm-hmm. talking about it with you makes it so much more clear but even while watching the night of the hunter i was like damn this is like this is a good double feature we did it again Mackenzie. <laughs> we did it again and we got some good ones coming up too so you know we're we're getting in our groove baby and seeing as we've we've rated, we've discussed, we've connected, now it is time to see what our new fresh start is. So now we've we've we're putting this double feature behind us. We are starting a new double feature with a film you have chosen for us. Uh, and I'm very, very excited to let everyone know what you've chosen. So Ian, bring me in. I definitely will, Mackenzie. But before I get to that, I do just want to quickly mention now while we don't have an email or a voice message to play for you all, if you our listeners want to write in or send us a voicemail about the night of the hunter about eve's bayou about that double feature or about what i'm about to reveal is our next pick you can email us your voice message or your email to the criterion connection at gmail.com as always don't forget that the or we won't get your message but i'm very glad you asked Mackenzie because i'm very excited to reveal what i have picked for our next fresh pick that you will then connect to i have been holding on to this movie for ages it is by the directors a pair of one of your and i's favorite films i bought this film at a barnes and noble sale at least a year ago now and i have not watched it yet (laughs) oh my gosh film is going to be spine number 317 directed by the archers you will never see anything finer on the screen a young poet named Hoffman broods over his failed romances. First, his affair with the beautiful Olympia is shattered when he realizes that she is really a mechanical woman designed by a scientist. What? Next, he believes that a striking prostitute loves him, only to find out she was hired to fake her affections by the dastardly Dapertuto. <gasps> Lastly, what? a magical spell claims the life of his final lover. This feels the like tales- a spoiler city. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) the tales of hoffman um is our next pick and i'm very excited i've seen a couple screenshots of this and it looks just like one of our favorites the red shoes to be very visually striking i believe if i'm not mistaken it is their follow-up to the red shoes Mm. 
It came out in I 1951. Mean, Red Shoes came out in 1948. Yes. 48. Yeah. I mean, I love the Red Shoes. It's one of the most mind blowing, uh, perfect films ever made. Uh, and I've, yeah, have had my eyes on the tales of Hoffman for a while. And you reading that, I am realizing I had no idea what this movie was about. And now I'm very interested because I've never read the synopsis like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm very interested to see, but yeah, I mean like every photo of it looks obviously just as stunning as um, the Red Shoes. So I'm very yeah. excited. Um, before we end, I do just want to get people a little bit more jazzed about it because I see a lot of people actually don't think as highly of this film as they do of the Red Shoes. Now the Red Shoes is on the Letterbox top 250 of all time list, I believe. Let me yes, I think it is. It's got to be high up. I mean, it's yeah. the red shoes. It is number 76. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but to that end, uh, one of our friends, Guti of the Real Latinos podcast, has rated this film five stars. And he says, this may be the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. This is the perfect marriage of music, dance choreography, and camera movement. This is art. Now, that's just a quick snippet of Goody's review. He writes a little bit more, but I am so jazzed for this film. Uh, Like I've said, I've seen a couple images of it. It looks gorgeous. Can't wait to talk to you about it. Um, But yeah, that is it from me. Mackenzie, do you have anything else? No, I'm just so excited. This film also stars Queen Moira Shearer, who leads the Red Shoes as well. So there's a lot of Red Shoes vibes here. And I, I mean, I'm just glancing at the film grab dot com page for this and i mean it just looks stunning but i what i wouldn't expect anything less from from colin pressburger so i'm really pumped i'm really glad you picked this one me too well Mackenzie. until then see you next week on the criterion connection